Tom and Jay are back for some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories on the World Series Champs edition. This week, we take a look at uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco's announcement on changes to white-collar enforcement, why health should be a part of ESG, tracking third-party risks. We ask what is effective compliance. We look at why ABC compliance can be seen as a good governance issue. Did a dysfunctional culture on the Rush movie set lead to a death? How can unclear values lead to ethical lapses? Is a new ABC law coming? Simplifying data governance and Gary Gensler's thought on cryptocurrency oversight. All this, an exciting new podcast we announce with Gwen Hassan looking at human trafficking issues, effing Argentina, some events, and all the stories on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 276, for the week ending November 5th, 2021. Yes, we are in November, the World Series Champs edition. As I mourn the Astros' loss in the World Series, I still tip my cat cap to the world champ Atlanta Braves. Uh, Jay and I return to reflect on some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories in the World Series Champs edition. Jay, what say you? I say we're on to Carolina. So, um, Jay, we had a lot of commentary this week. You and I have exchanged some IMs and some uh, emails about some very interesting comments made by the Deputy Attorney General, DAG, Lisa Monaco, last week, where she announced some changes to white-collar enforcement, specifically uh, the FCPA. Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, wrote about it. I I wrote and am writing about it. We took a look at it into in compliance into the weeds. I know you attended a webinar on it, and I think every law firm uh, in America with a white collar practice has written about it. Maybe I could uh, start off by asking you what you thought were maybe a couple of the highlights uh, from where you sit. Uh, sure, Tom. I, I think number one from a monitor's perspective is that uh, there's a new game in town and. Uh, we've commented quite often over the last administration that the number of monitorships were basically uh, negative or zero over the last three to four years. And one of the things that's really telling about the remarks that the DAG made, which she said, effective immediately, monitors are a solution now, and they're not something that should be looked as a punitive solution, but it's something that if a company has issues with ethics and culture and their processes and procedures, by bringing in the monitor, it is not to punish them, but it is to help them. So it's great to be seen as an ally now instead of an adversary. So that would be my top takeaway, take Tom. Jay, I had a couple of others I'd like to throw in for the compliance professional. Number one, uh, recidivists will be looked at much more closely now. That ties into, I think, your thoughts or, or observations, rather, on the monitor ships. And I think the Department of Justice will take a much uh, closer look at whether 
a company really uh, has the will to implement and enforce what they agree to in a settlement agreement. The second thing is uh, a um, reversion back to the Yates memo, which requires companies to self-disclose information on all participants or potential participants in any FCPA violations, just not those substantially involved. And uh, next is a review of uh, DPAs and NPAs. Now, in her remarks, uh, uh, Dagmonico said this was in the context of those companies who are recidivist or multiple repeat offenders. Nevertheless, I think this may uh, cause the Department of Justice to take a broader look at settlement mechanisms and what they believe may be more effective. That could be stronger terms, more stringent terms, could be increased oversight via monitorship. And the last thing is that with any company that now is an enforcement action, the DOJ is going to look at their entire culture of compliance, not simply anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance. So uh, have you been involved in tax disputes? Have you had EEOC issues? Do you have uh, Department of Treasury issues? Do you have OFAC? Uh, any other legal compliance issues? And the DOJ is going to take a much more holistic view of a company's entire culture and whether they comply with all laws, uh, that really means a couple of things for the compliance professional. You may not have really looked at other areas of compliance, and you may now be forced to. And if you're going to be evaluated on them, uh, how much work are you going to have to put into those other areas? Uh, even something as basic as, is there one repository of knowledge in the company that knows about all open company investigations or company violations or company settlements. Uh, certainly, that could be in the legal department, but not necessarily. And uh, someone's going to have to uh, to respond to that and be a repository of information for the Department of Justice, whether this spreads to regulators or um, uh, uh, such as the Securities and Exchange Commission or others is unknown as yet. Uh, and finally, the Department of Justice is going to take uh, a uh, comprehensive look at settlement agreements, DPAs and NPAs specifically. Uh, and so it's unclear if that will include outside parties. I know Matt Kelly wrote that, that uh, he certainly thought that was a good idea. So really lots of changes. Um, the, the revision or reversion uh, of or the end of the Benchkowski memo regarding monitorships, it's not clear whether or not the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy, which has a presumption of a declination with uh, self-disclosure, remediation, cooperation, and uh, dis profit disgorgement, if that will also be in place because now you have to turn over information on all employees and like, let the DOJ really decide which employees, if any, should be prosecuted. So lots of changes. Lots of people have written about it. If you're a compliance officer and you haven't studied this, I really would urge you to. You can go to my blog, uh, Matt's blog. Uh, Mike Volkoff wrote about it. Uh, we've all cited to the original text of the speech. So uh, check all of those things out. So, Jay, uh, had you considered uh, a employee health aspect to ESG? And if you haven't, should you? I think you definitely should, and we're going to uh, quote an article here by John Godfrey, which uh, appeared this week in Corporate Compliance Insights. Over the past couple of decades, ESG investing 
has made its way into the mainstream, but it's still largely focused on the E, standing for environmental factors. More than $4 trillion of assets now use climate change and carbon footprint as criteria for making investment decisions. Meanwhile, the S, or social component, of ESG has remained underdeveloped, partly because it's hard to measure. Within this category, health remains low profile, so investors and companies' treatment of health issues is today broadly where climate change was almost two decades ago. COVID-19 has highlighted the parallels between the climate and health, and there's a case to make that it may be time for companies to put their operational and investment muscle into influencing a public health agenda. In short, business needs to be more front-footed about developing ESHG, specifically calling out the health in ESG investments. And the author would like to suggest that health is the new frontier for ethical and sustainable business. The pandemic has underscored in an extreme way that economic performance depends on population health. However, at any time, the cost of poor health and health inequalities are enormous, impacting at macroeconomic, microeconomic, and even individual levels. So how can companies operate in this new ESHG framework? To start with, businesses need to acknowledge that their outputs and products can often influence health negatively. There are ways that we can address this imbalance. The lowest hanging fruit within the workplace may be rethinking the cafeteria menu, well-being services, gym memberships, even better work environments. As a next step, the health impacts of a company's goods or services on its customers need more attention. A good example of this is works how this works is with a UK food service company called Griggs, whose shares rocketed 13% in May of 2019 as a result of an 11% boost to revenue following the launch of a vegan sausage roll. Sounds kind of weird, but it works. Interestingly, brokers assessing Griggs' performance now see these actions as the equivalent of greening, a major topic in the ethics playbook and equally action-oriented. Looking across other industries to see how this framework might be deployed, look at furniture makers. It might mean identifying alternatives to toxic chemicals used in plastic and wood stains, or for a middle-of-the-supermarket-processed food companies, it could amount to a complete product redesign like Riggs did, reverse sugar and heavy-fat Western diets that create imbalance in gut bacteria. Bottom line, companies can look up and down value, their value chains to discover where doors exist to open up possibilities for better health outcomes. As companies are thus transforming themselves, institutional investors can proactively offer a carrot or stick to businesses by adding H to their ESG expectations. Why business needs to step in. Even in the pre-pandemic, the cost of poor health and significant inequalities in health and mortality were huge, both on human life and economic performance. However, it took the pandemic to demonstrate unassailably that economic performance is dependent upon population health, both physical and mental. This is a trend that will only become more pronounced over time. Like climate, health, or ESG, ESHG, investing is not only about avoiding downside risk, but also the upside equivalents of investing in new technologies. Certain businesses, for example, life sciences companies, exist to improve health. 
The life science sector is the most obvious upside zone for health investors, but many startup healthy food brands are also gaining traction. By applying an ESHG investment approach, companies can use employee health as a proxy for improved productivity and healthier bottom lines. So keep your eye on the ESHG investing. The health challenge is every bit as urgent as the environmental crisis, and governments can only do so much. We need to change our approach to health from the top down and put our money where it matters, solving a social problem that will otherwise continue to get worse. So, Mike, uh, rather, Tom, can you tell us uh, what is on Mike Volkov's mind? Sure, Jay. Uh, Mike Volkov had a uh, post this week about keeping track of third-party risks. No surprise there, as they are still the highest FCPA risk. But Mike really took at it, took a look at it from a little bit different angle, and that's from the OFAC angle. And there, OFAC's reach to third-party liability is well-established, Companies can be held liable for sanctions violations when they ship to a third party in another country and have reason to know that third party intends to reship the product to a prohibited country, prohibited entity or individual. Uh, Nevertheless, it's not um, uh, the OFAC takes a much dimmer view if you have reason to know or uh, if you look the other way through conscious indifference. And he specifically focused on resellers. Um, uh, business-wise, a reseller takes your product, pays for it, takes title, and then uh, it does exactly what he says, which is a um, resells it. And now you're responsible if he resells it, he or she resells it, to a uh, prohibited party. So you need to have an end-user certificate. You need to follow through and make sure that it goes to that end user. If you don't, you will have a potential OFAC liability. So um, interesting post from Mike really focusing on something that I think we're pretty familiar with, Jay, in terms of third-party risk. But you can get into OFAC sanctions violations uh, just as you can uh, under the FCPA. So if you're selling goods overseas and you're using resellers, you need to be uh, put some risk management strategies in place. And Mike uh, talks about those as well. So uh, good remembering on third-party risks. Jay, what does uh, Dick Casson have to say about effective compliance? Thanks for asking, Tom. Uh, this comes to us from the FCPA blog, which Dick found. And uh, he says, a lot of credit for equating managing with math goes to the late Peter Drucker. He's not famous for quotes that are, say, what gets measured gets managed. And he also said, If you can't measure it, you can't improve it. Those pithy quotes launched a thousand quantitative B-school courses. If management is about math, what does that mean for managing compliance? Put another way, can we measure compliance? Well, we can measure elements of a compliance program, and we can use those measurements to make assumptions about compliance itself. Take training. Managers at Acme Energy Company can measure how many, what percentage of employees, annual compliance training. What the managers aren't measuring, of course, is they can't see if the trainees have an intent to follow that training. Do they all intend to practice what they've learned, what may happen when they face real-world choices, whether or not to comply or cheat? We can't measure intent because it's invisible and it's instantly changeable. 
We can assume, for example, that adequately trained, trained employees will be more inclined to comply and less, incl- less inclined to cheat. So if Acme Energy doesn't detect any compliance problems, should we measure its compliance program as being 100% effective? Well, we can't actually do that because if there's a compliance problem, we wouldn't say that the compliance program is 0% effective, and that doesn't logically follow. Fortunately, that's not how the DOJ and the SEC look at it. Per the U.S. sentencing guidelines, they encourage compliance managers to use measurements, but don't specify how. Quote, the organization shall take reasonable steps to communicate periodically and in a practical manner its standards and procedures and other aspects of the compliance and ethics program. By conducting effective training programs and otherwise disseminating information, appropriate to such individuals' respective roles and responsibilities. So what about that unmeasurable intent? The sentencing guidelines may still credit a program even if there's a compliance problem up to a point. Failing to prevent or detect one of these offenses doesn't necessarily mean that the compliance program isn't effective according to the guidelines. But on the other hand, recurrence of similar misconduct creates doubt regarding whether their organization took reasonable reasonable steps to meet the requirements. The problem of unmeasurable intent aside, compliance leaders can and should measure their programs wherever possible. What's appropriate, adequate, or effective? That's partly what compliance managers can defend and partly what the Fed say it is. Still, sometimes measurement is pure math. Other times, with compliance programs, measurement is math plus professional judgment, plus benchmarking, plus real-world outcomes, plus external expectation. What does that mean for compliance professionals? Don't stop measuring just yet. Tom, next up, we've got an article from the New York Times about why it's so hard to speak up at work. So uh, actually, Jay, I switched this one out for another article that comes to us from the Global Anti-Corruption blog, uh, a guest post by Joe Grady. And the reason I switched it out, Jay, is the post is entitled Shifting Anti-Corruption Messaging from Crime and Punishment to Guardrails for Good Governance. And I really thought this article touched upon some points that are becoming more and more evident and more and more important, which are that compliance really is seen as good governments. You've already talked about ESG. Well, you talked about the S. Well, I'm now talking about the G. Now, Joe Grady talks about this in the context largely of foreign governments, governments, and putting guardrails around foreign governments so that they don't engage in bribery and corruption. But Jay, as I read this, I thought about the message from the Department of Justice uh, around uh, crime and punishment, moving from crime and punishment to really good guardrails for your corporation. And although we detailed some of the potential enforcement changes uh, that Lisa Monaco talked about, we, we really did not speak to her lengthy opening remarks around corporate culture. And good governance is a good, uh, an indicia of uh, good corporate culture. So the, um, this message that it, it really uh, goes along with a much more positive message for compliance and that when you have uh, good governance as a pragmatic solution 
of compliance, it focuses less on good and bad people and more on building and strengthening the key mechanisms, um, policies and procedures, codes of conduct, processes that will successfully keep uh, companies, uh, you know, within the boundaries uh, of the law. So I thought this was a really interesting way to look at this because uh, the more I think about it and the more I read about it, I see <clears throat> uh, obviously compliance is a component of good governments, but not governance, but now we're back to ESG. And if companies are going to have a robust ESG, they must have the E, the S, and the G. And this is where I think that compliance really needs to take a leadership position in ESG. And uh, if you think of uh, good compliance as good governance, and if you think of the regulators and enforcement agencies wanting to move companies towards good governance through compliance, it really ties it all together in a way that, uh, frankly, I hadn't thought of. So I thought that would be a great article for uh, people to uh, give a think. So, Jay, um, our next story is not really compliance, although you may be able to tie it there for us, but it's about culture. And I know it's something near and dear to your heart, which is safety on movie sets. You spoke about that in our last Everything Compliance, and obviously we had a a tragedy on the set of uh, Rush, the Alec Baldwin movie, but a lot has come out uh, about the culture on that movie set and I was wondering if uh, what your thoughts might be on really how can a dysfunctional culture really lead to disaster? Yeah, it, it's it's a great question. And it's, you know, as you said, a very sad event. Um, Rust's armorer lawyer suggests sabotage crew members details lack of gun safety on the set of Alec Baldwin's movie. Uh, Former crew members and their attorneys are now speaking out about what they believe went wrong on the set in New Mexico last month. And Lane Looper, who served as the first camera assistant until resigning the day before Hutchins was killed, appeared Wednesday on Good Morning America. And he said, quote, in his 10 years as a camera assistant, he's never worked in a show that cared so little for the safety of its crew. Looper wrote in his resignation letter. He wasn't the only person to feel that way. According to an affidavit filed by the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office, around six members had similar concerns and walked out. A central question in the case concerns how a live round wound up in the weapon that Baldwin discharged, drawing attention to the armorer who would have been in charge of handling and safely storing all firearms on set. I think with Rust, it was a perfect storm of the armorer, the assistant director, the culture that was on set and rushing. It was everything. It just wasn't one individual. Everything had to fall into place perfectly for this one in a trillion tragedy to happen. The 24-year-old armorer, Hannah Gutierrez, previously told the detective that no live ammo was ever kept on, on the set. Her attorneys appeared on Today's show to defend their client, who they said in a statement last week, quote, had no idea where the live rounds came from. As the news conference held last week with district attorney overseeing Santa Fe County, they announced that a lead projectile had been recovered from Sousa's shoulder. In addition to Gutierrez, details from the investigation have increasingly drawn scrutiny to the behavior of the assistant director, Dave Halls, who handled Baldwin in the 45. Just so you know, uh, on a set, 
you've got the production side and you've got the creative side and the uh, assistant director holds one level below the director and he works he or she works with all the actors and cues them up and gets them to set. So that's why it's really important that they're focusing on uh, the assistant director here. Uh, the affidavit states that Halls yelled cold gun before giving Baldwin the revolver. And this is an industry term to indicate that it did not contain any live rounds. Baldwin, who was also a producer on the movie, spoke out on October 21st and saying that the director of photography who tragically died was a friend of his. They were very, a very well oiled crew shooting a film together when this horrible event happened. On Tuesday, Baldwin posted to Instagram a series of screenshots of a Facebook comment written by his costume designer, and it had the text read this. Davis wrote in comments that she was sick of this narrative, referring to the story being spun of us being overworked and surrounded by unsafe and chaotic conditions. She defended the producers at length and refuted claims like loopers of long hours and difficult situations. It's a very rare thing to happen, Looper said. In the film industry, we have these things called safety bulletins, and they are basically an owner's manual on how to run a safe set. The very first sentence in the very first bulletin about firearm safety says, quote, there shall never be live rounds anywhere on a studio lot or a stage or set. So this action is unheard of. So, Tom, like you said, in the past, we've talked about uh, you were in the oil industry and the extractive industry before, and quite often when a shift starts, there are safety messages, especially on a movie set. If you're having firearms, there is a safety message, and it's just inexcusable that this tragedy happened. So it's uh, unfortunate now that everybody's playing a, a point-and-blame game, but the truth is going to come out. And one thing I will say that I think – kind of uh, argues for what they're suggesting happen. This was an independent movie. Independent movies do not have your 200 million plus MCU budgets. They're made on short money, anywhere from a million dollars on the low budget end to 20 or $30 million. So it's quite believable that the producers, in order to save money and get the movie made, may have combined duties that the armorer had an addition responsibility than to solely looking after the weapon so unfortunately i think that's what happened here and i hope that there there's been situations in the past when brandon lee died on the set of the crow that people were really having a groundswell and just like things happened after sandy hook and people want to make changes hopefully we can say that this will be the last tragedy that ever happened on a movie set and we can move forward with having zero usage of live or even firearms with blanks on the set. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Jay, the question I wanted to pose to you was, it seemed like the kind of lower level technical production crew had the had the idea that safety was everyone's responsibility and the lawyers for the assistant director and those higher up said, Oh no, no. Uh, safety is one person's responsibility. And, and so um, 
What do you feel like uh, that that safety issue falls? Is it really siloed or is safety really seen as everyone's responsibility on a set? It, it's your latter point, Tom. And just like when we look at companies that have that lack a culture of compliance, it appears that this movie set lacked a culture of safety. And especially that it was a Western in guns and having those type of dangerous items on set. People, you know, the, the the camera person said, look, we needed to know about this because we need to move the camera and have it out of the way just in case there's any type of misfire. So it wasn't just the responsibility or one of two people. It should be the responsibility. It should say on the call sheet that firearms are being used and there should be a safety message on that call sheet, which is basically a work order form form saying this is what we're going to shoot this day. So um, I I believe there's there was a lack of a safety culture that unfortunately led to this tragedy. The other thing that struck me about the article, Jay, was once again the remarks by the assistant cameraman that uh, it wasn't one thing; it was a series of mistakes. It was a series of maybe not even mistakes. Uh, you pointed to the production the uh, independent nature of the production rather, and, you know, cost cutting people with multiple jobs. And it really struck me that's really the same thing that happens largely in an FCPA case. It's never one thing. Somebody doesn't wake up today and say, I'm going to bribe the minister of uh, Gabon or any other country and you name the country. Um, It's a series of mistakes. It's a series of internal control overrides. It's a a series of money being uh, hidden or buried under other accounts. And um, yes, uh, you can have a series of mistakes not leading to catastrophe. But in this case, you had a series of mistakes uh, which led up to the ultimate catastrophe, the uh, the taking of a human life. So I thought the reason, in addition to the reason me wanting to bring this article up and have you comment on it, I thought it was very good from that perspective for the compliance professional to think, you know, that's why we have processes and procedures, and that's why we have backups, and that's why we have redundant systems, and that's why we have controls. Uh, if someone does make a mistake, if someone intentionally does something that hopefully one of our controls uh, will pick it up and stop it before it becomes catastrophic. So, Tom, next up, I think this is an appro- uh, appropriate article. It's entitled, Unclear Values Can Lead to Ethical Lapses. Why don't this, you tell I us about that? This, I thought, was a very interesting article because um, it comes to us from Brett Beasley at the Notre Dame Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership. And he wrote that um, it's not simply can you talk the walk, but walk the walk, but are your values unclear? And he said the more unclear your values are, the more uh, it is difficult uh, to enforce those values. And then he cited to uh, a couple of authors who basically said, one, Bethany McLean said, the more grandiose a company's code of conduct is, the more flowery, flowery it is, the more suspicious you would be. Well, Jay, as a lawyer, uh, that seems counterintuitive to me. Nevertheless, um, the article and the research seems to indicate that uh, that's exactly true. And so uh, what Brett Beasley suggests is simply pursue fluency. And he really gives some examples, such as uh, never use a metaphor or figure of speech 
when you're trying to get a point across in a, in a code of conduct, but never use a short, and these come from George Orwell, so you have to say they come from a pretty good source. Never use a long word when a short one will do. If it's possible to cut a word, cut a word. Never use the passive when the active will do. Never use a foreign phrase, scientific word, or jargon when everyday English will work. And um, it's it's really, uh, I think, a great lesson from a, a school of a very good writer on why it's important to be direct and concise in your code of conduct. And, and once again, as a lawyer, it seemed a little bit counterintuitive to me. Gosh, you can't have a lot of legal words in there, uh, obstrificating the entire message. But uh, maybe the point is, uh, be direct, use plain English uh, going forward. I know you've written a fair amount of, of words in your lifetime. And is, is that type of communication strategy valid from where you sit? Well, I, I think if you want to really appeal to people's sense of doing the right thing and making it easy for them, I would always say to use the uh, the shorter words, you know, the dollar words versus the 50 cents words. So, uh, you know, although you lawyers kind of bill by the word or is it the hour? I can't remember. But I would say that letter. <laughs> I would say, especially when you're trying to deal with everyday people you got to make it as easy as possible for them to follow instructions. So Jay, what's the coolest guy in compliance got for us this week? Well, this uh, also comes to us from his radical compliance and we've got some more uh, acronyms and jargon that I'm going to be throwing at our readers. Uh, A bipartisan group in Congress has revised legislation that would make it a crime for foreign government officials to, to demand or accept bribes from a U.S. company to serve as a statutory counterpart to the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. This act is called the Foreign Extortion Preventa Act, and I will say FIPA, I hope that makes is the right way. This has been kicking around the House of the Representatives since 2019, and this past Tuesday, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Tom Tillis, a Democrat and Republican, introduced this companion bipartisan legislation. It's illegal for American business to pay a bribe abroad, so this bipartisan legislation makes it illegal for a kleptocrat to demand one, White House said. The bill proposes that any foreign government official guilty of its provisions would be subject to monetary penalties of up to a quarter of a million dollars, 15 years in prison, or both. And much like the FCPA, The Foreign Extortion Prevention Act defines bribery and solicitation of bribes broadly. From the text, it shall be unlawful for any foreign official to corruptly demand, seek, receive, accept, or agree to receive or accept anything of value personally or in affecting interstate commerce in return for being influenced in the performance of an official act, being induced to do or omit to do any act in violation of official duties, or three, conferring any improper advantage in connection with obtaining or retaining business or with or directing business. So will FIPA actually go anywhere? FIPA does have plenty of support from all the usual good governance group, Transparency International, Coalition for Integrity, 
Oxfam of America, and more. It also has support from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which may win over some Republican lawmakers. Matt's question, however, is this. If FIPA does become law, how will its existence on the book affect enforcement of FCPA violations? For example, if the Justice Department insists that a company under investigation must provide evidence against all participants in the wrongdoing, if that company wants cooperation credit, wouldn't it mean the company would also cooperate in FIPA prosecutions too? And I mean, by definition, the foreign official accepting or soliciting the bribe or complicit in the scheme. And if a company did need to cooperate in FIPA prosecutions, how would that work in practice? Even better, if the foreign official is a high-priority target for the U.S. government on some national security grounds, like, say, a crony of Vladimir Putin that the feds want to indict to exert pressure on the Russian president, would that perhaps give the company a stronger hand in its FCPA case? Some, if you want to nail this guy, we want a non-prosecution agreement with no penalty sort of gambit. Of course, for any of these scenarios to come to pass, Washington first needs to pass FIPA into law. So let's stand by and see what happens. Tom, uh, how do you go go about simplifying data governance? Well, Jay, uh, we earlier talked about governance, good governance in the context of compliance and uh, ESG. But before we get to this article, uh, we learned uh, last week about meta and the metaverse. Let me throw another term at you. How about a zettabyte? You know what that is? No, but you're going to tell me. Well, it's 100 terabytes. And uh, in 2018, the world's uh, data, there were 18 zettabytes. Well, uh, the IDC predicts that by 2025, there will be 175 zettabytes of data. Um, that's a lot of emails, baby. So how are you going to govern those and how are you going to put those into a data governance format? Uh, these are all questions that are explored in an article entitled to simplify the complexities of data governance. Take a bird's eye journey view of your journey ahead by Alma Rayani uh, in CCI this week. And it's really, a, I think, a really good article to get compliance professionals starting to think about data governance. Obviously, data privacy and data protection are uh, within the data governance framework, but I believe compliance is, and if good governance is uh, as well, in addition to being in the G of ESG, I think data governance is a part of that. So some of the reasons you should do so is to enable better decision-making, reduce operational friction, protect the need of data stakeholders, Train your staff on common approaches to data issues. Build standard, reliable processes. You can reduce costs and increase efficiency through coordination of efforts and ensure transparency of the processes. So data governance is going to become more and more um, important, uh, I think, literally because of uh, ESG, uh, but also the amount of data and, of course, Data privacy, data protections laws, such as the uh, GDPR, are going to demand this. So I think it's going to wrap around uh, compliance quite a bit, and I hope the compliance practitioners listening to this will really try to start to get a handle on data governance, not simply compliance data, 
but really all data. And once again, it's going to be a part of ESG. Our final story is about SEC Chairman Gensler and his recent remarks around crypto. What did he say that interested you? Sure. So uh, this comes to us from the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal, from our good friend Minky Sun. Um, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler said the regulator will be very active in bringing the digital currency market under its protection framework as the Biden administration increases scrutiny of cryptocurrencies. Mr. Gensler's remarks Tuesday at a conference hosted by the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association came a day after the Treasury Department-led panel issued a report on stablecoins, which are cryptocurrencies pegged to assets such as the U.S. dollars. As the report asked Congress to impose a new regulatory framework, around stablecoins and to limit the issuance of such digital assets to banks. Stablecoins are issued by companies such as Tether Limited and Circle Internet Financial, and they're designed to combine the ability to trade quickly online like Bitcoin with the stability of national currencies such as the dollar. But the panel said stablecoins could fuel instability if users come to doubt the value of the underlying assets that keep the prices stable. Mr. Gensler compared cryptocurrencies, which have been around for 13 years, to a teenager, needing that, adding that he believes the technology won't reach adulthood if it isn't brought within the broader regulatory oversight for issues such as anti-money laundering and tax compliance. There's a lot of hype and there's a lot of investors on one hand reaching for yield who are hoping to have a little bit better future. But these platforms right now generally have not come into either the Commodity Futures Trading Commission or the SEC to be within an investor protection framework, Gensler said. Stable coins hold about 5% of the crypto asset market value, but represent 75 to 80% of the crypto transactions volume, Mr. Gensler said. He suggested that members of the securities trade group work with their lawyers and accountants to ensure consumer protections are in place rather than simply seek approval from banks and regulators. So it sounds like even though cryptocurrencies are at their bar mitzvah year, they still must have to stay in secondary school to get a little bit more seasoning. So that's my pithy outro on the 10 stories for this week. Tom, is there a new podcast that we need to tell everyone about? There is, Jay, uh, premiering this week on the Compliance Podcast Network. We have Hidden Traffic hosted by Gwen Hassan. In this podcast, Gwen helps compliance professionals assess human trafficking risk and leveraging leverage their organization's resources to root out this tragic problem. Uh, Episode one dropped this week. Gwen visits with Matt Friedman. Uh, If you've not heard Matt Friedman before, he's one of literally the world's leading experts, and he's got some just gut-wrenching stories uh, about sexual exploitation and uh, a much broader remit, though, than than simply that. So uh, I'm really excited to have Gwen join the CPN. Uh, Gwen was one of the first compliance professionals I met who was talking publicly about human trafficking from the corporate perspective and how corporations needed to look into their supply chain. And Jay, if we could tie into ESG yet one more time, that's directly into the S, who's in your supply chain. Um, 
what is your social responsibility around this? And Matt Friedman talks about in the episode that if a company gets caught or rather one of their subcontractors is caught using uh, human trafficked labor or uh, labor where people are not being paid, then uh, the reputational outfall can be uh, tremendous for a corporation. Uh, They may not even know who's in their supply chain. Obviously, when you overlay the pandemic and how that's disrupted supply chains, I hope companies understand now they need to take a much closer look into that. So um, check out episode one of Hidden Traffic with Gwen Hassan. Jay, in uh, Effing Argentina, my podcast with Greg Greenberg, author of Effing Argentina, uh, where we explore the current American psyche of being overworked, overleveraged, overtired, and overwhelmed and exasperated. Uh, he has a great story about uh, meeting a dog and its owner on the streets of New York City. I won't give away the uh, <clears throat> the punchline or the money shot, as you movie people would say, <laughs> but it's worth the entire story just for the money shot. So um, the um, uh, effing Argentina, you want to tell us about uh, this month um, on the Compliance Life? Yeah, this this month, Tom is sitting down with uh, Wendy Badger, who's the CCO at Tenant. And in the uh, first episode of the four-part series, uh, she details her academic career in her early professional life. So uh, the podcasts just keep on coming, Tom. You are out at a pod conference. What have you learned uh, at this new event that you're at? So I'm at uh, PodFest Global, the Origins Conference, and it's being held in Tampa. Um, the, uh, the first thing, Jay, I have to report is uh, all of the hotels I stay at were booked. Hyatt, Marriott, Sheraton, Ramada, everybody. So I stayed at a new hotel, and it's located in the old Cuban city in Tampa, uh, the, what they call the Cuban ghetto, uh, long before the revolution. But it's where all the cigar factories were. And there are many cigar bars uh, in the area. Uh, so for you cigar aficionados, if you come to Tampa, stay at the uh, Hotel Haha or Haya, I should say. It's, uh, it's a great walk down the street. But the, the conference is great. I talked about the Compliance Podcast Network today and building a network. I learned about active listening, about interviewing skills, about hiring outsourced uh, folks, and I learned uh, some new strategies that I'm going to try to incorporate into some of my podcasts as well uh, as we move, as the podcast industry becomes more mature. And certainly someone like myself who started podcast really as a passion project and something that was seen as a lot of fun that uh, I've been able to move to a robust business model with the Compliance Podcast Network. So expect some big things out of the Compliance Podcast Network next year. We're over 80 shows now. I've got four new shows premiering in uh, November um, on my own. So uh, hopefully we are have some other sh- new non-Tom Fox podcasts in development. But kudos to Gwen. Uh, she really knows as much about human trafficking as anyone in the corporate compliance world. And I'm so thrilled that she's uh, really spread her wings out, uh, much like uh, Mary and Lisa did a couple of years ago when they started the Great Women in Compliance. I think uh, – Gwen will really become that voice in compliance podcasting around uh, human trafficking. So um, I guess uh, you probably saw the World Series, Jay. Are you going to also tip your cap to the Atlanta Braves? 
Yeah, you know, because they used to be the Boston Braves many years ago. I have a signed Henry Aaron baseball when he was on the Boston Braves that uh, my dad got when he was a little boy. So uh, uh, kudos to them. And um, now we can start focusing on football, basketball, and hockey. Except I don't, I don't know. Is there any hockey in Texas? Not in Kerrville. Not in Kerrville. So, Tom, uh, last thing, number 15, can you tell me how a compliance Bible became a bestseller? Sure. Uh, I was contacted by Bestseller TV, and they said, we want you to be on Bestseller TV uh, because you have uh, the top compliance Bible. So I got interviewed by Bestseller TV for the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition, published by LexisNexis, authored by myself, which came out in June. Uh, the interview was a ton of fun. I hope you'll check it out. But equally importantly, I hope you'll uh, buy the handbook. It is designed, it is for the compliance professional. It's uh, how to design, create, and implement a best practices compliance program. So uh, check out Bestseller TV, then go to the LexisNexis website and buy the book. Uh, Jay, you want to take us home? Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I am always your Mr. Monitor, Jay Rosen. I can be reached at the initial J R O S E N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 276 for the week ending November 5th, 2021, the World Series Champs edition. Uh, both Tom and I tip our caps to the Atlanta Braves. And we thank you all for listening to our podcast and spending some of your week and weekend with us. And we will be back here next week when we talk to you about this week and FCPA. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you'll check out the latest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, a podcast hosted by Gwen Hassan, where Gwen looks at the international scourge of human trafficking. And more importantly, the response a corporation and compliance professional can make to help fight this scourge. Once again, Hidden Traffic, hosted by Gwen Hassan on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.